0: Church, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. At the end of the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you to respond. Thanks be to God. Today's reading comes from Isaiah 58, 1 through 14. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people they are transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast in a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and wicked speaking, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the earths. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all this beautiful Reformation Sunday. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, Thank you to the band for leading us in song. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at Reformation and renewal, really. And uh, it's appropriate. We actually didn't plan that, but here we are. All throughout church history, there's always been cycles of Reformation and renewal, whether it was Paul standing up for the Gentiles as part of God's redemptive plan, or Athanasius crying out um, over the reason for the incarnation, or maybe it was even Augustine standing up for the sovereignty of God, Martin Luther, of course, standing up for the sufficiency of Scripture. The church has always been marked by renewal and reform. And one thing that stood out to me, even thinking about Reformation Sunday, is this, that God, in His providence, protects and preserves the gospel, throughout centuries, over and over and over again. It's kind of cool to think about that we don't know when the next reformation will take place, but maybe it begins here. Maybe it begins with us in this room. So this section in Isaiah is emphasizing it's beginning to pivot towards the new heavens, the new earth and the complete restoration project of the Lord Himself, where He's restoring all things and making all things new. Last week, we saw a stunning chapter in Isaiah 55, where we see God pouring out on the people His Spirit. But specifically, He's pouring out His Spirit on the lowly, the weak, the vulnerable, the humble. And He invites them to be a part of this renovation project. In 2 Chronicles 16, uh, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. God is looking to give strong support to those who seek Him, and His heart is blameless toward Him. And God desires us as the church to be a little preview or snapshot, if you will, of coming attractions. Pastor Ian has said this before, but we're basically a teaser trailer getting you ready for the motion picture. You know, uh, I read the Dune books like 10 years ago, but Dune just came out. Everybody's freaking out over Dune. Well, 10 years ago, we got this book, and when I saw the first trailer for this movie, I started geeking out. It's like, this is what it's going to be like. It looks amazing, all that. That's what the church is called to be. We're called to be a preview of coming attractions. In a world that is thirsty and hungry and hopeless, we are called to be a preview of the renewal and restoration of all things. It's the same way with God's people. We're called to be light on a hill, salt of the earth. And Israel was originally called to be this. They were called to be a light unto the nations. So this morning we're going to look at Israel, and I think that we can learn a lot from what's going on in Israel's day, because nothing is new under the sun after all. So this is where we're headed this morning. The gospel transforms us, into people who love justice and delight in righteousness from the heart. The gospel transforms us into people who love justice and delight in righteousness from the heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in need of renewal, in need of reform father too often we're on autopilot break the cycle wake us up father would we take off any mask any front any pretense and would we seek to honor you from the heart with our lives now lord may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, God, my rock and my redeemer. Pray in your name. Amen. So, this chapter is really divided into two sections. The first looks at a counterfeit fast, or a bone, uh, a counterfeit, or a uh, jackleg, bootleg fast. The other looks at the true fast. First, we'll look at the counterfeit fast. In verse one, it says, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Up until now in the book of Isaiah, over and over and over, when this cry aloud language is used, it's usually immediately pivoting into good news, comfort, gospel, hope. Here it does not. It pivots into transgression. And this is a trumpet of prophetic confrontation to us, literally a crying from the throat What could be this bad? What could be so serious? What sin so severe that this crying is taking place? Verse 2, yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. What were you expecting? confronted with sin, what would you expect to hear? Maybe murder? Maybe they're running around murdering folk? Maybe idolatry? Maybe they were stealing? Maybe they were doing all a mixture of all these things, but instead we see a people that's seeking God daily, delighting to even know his ways, asking for righteous judgments. It says they even delight to draw near to God. Friends, this is a church that you and I would enter and be like, this is a great church, looking good, looking good. Look at these things that they're doing. And it's possible for a church to check all of these boxes with absolutely no awareness that under the hood is a cancerous poison growing. I'm tragically, and I mean this, tragically not a car person. I am horrible at cars. In order for me to be aware of a problem in my car, my dashboard needs to light up like a Christmas tree. I mean, I'm talking every indicator, and then I'm like, something might be wrong. (laughs) And this passage has been lighting up on my dashboard all week, frankly, all week long. We look at at externals. God looks deeper. He pops the hood of our hearts, and he knows what's really going on underneath all of our activity. Let's look at verse 3. Why have we fasted? Israel's crying out. Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? The people of Israel have been fasting and humbling themselves, and yet, even their behavior that seems so good, God is seeming so distant to them. And so they start asking why. They did it all. They did the religious activity, but then they got mad at God for not drawing near. They couldn't obligate God to respond to them. The people of Israel are surrounded by Canaanites. And in Canaanite religion, how you got God's attention was by, in some, in some instances, cutting yourself to draw the attention of God, doing certain religious activities to get him to notice you. But this is not how Yahweh operates, nor how Christ operates. And in all their self-deprivation and fasting, and praying, they couldn't leverage cooperation out of God, and they resented him for it. See, what was making them sick wasn't the fact that they were running around committing murder and sinning and doing all these things. It was actually that they thought their religious activity was good when it was not. The check engine light's on. Do we get angry at God when you check all the spiritual boxes and he doesn't respond when he seems distant, when he seems quiet? Or do you take personal pride in your moral, ethical, spiritual performance? Zechariah 7 in verse 5 addresses the very same issue. It says, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? In verse 2, it says this, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, as if they did those things, they were playing a game, they were playing a game, they were role-playing, which is the very definition of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is playing a game. It's wearing a mask that may be smiling here while underneath is not smiling. It's broken. At the first chapter of Isaiah, which is really a table of contents for the whole book, it says this They honor me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. And now the Lord, in his kindness, check engine lights, brothers and sisters, this moment is a kindness to us, is going to tell them their true motives of their hearts, and he's going to invite them into true reality. We'll pick up at the second part of verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. They're fasting, seeking their own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose... A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed or to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? We are super compartmentalized beings. It's entirely possible that we come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and walk out Monday to Saturday completely unchanged completely unchanged we think in many ways that we can overcompensate for different areas in our lives you know over here i may uh be doing super spiritual things but over here i'm acting completely corruptly and i think that that's somehow balancing out on the scales we love these things we love balance the idea of balance whatever that means work-life balance carb to protein balance all of these things we love balance But this approach does not work with God, friends. We can't compensate for neglect in one area of life by observance in another. And it's entirely possible that we come here, you hear a word preached. Like last week, you hear a word preached about the good news of the gospel. What a word! That was awesome. I'm so encouraged. Praise God. Amen. Amen. And then you leave, unchanged, unmoved. Can we talk about this for one second? We live in a world of resonating. We resonate with all sorts of messages. They might even get, oh, I'm going to share that. I'm going to share that. I'm retweeting that. We resonate deeply. But do we strive for obedience? Resonating isn't a bad thing. Where does it go? Where does it lead? We can log off completely unchanged. And God is inviting us this morning to trade in resonance for obedience. But not only because uh, we should obey out of the sense of duty, but obedience from the heart to lay down this mask of indifference and follow him. It's the same stuff all throughout human history, though. Jesus was born 700 years after this in a culture full of hypocrisy. We use the word Pharisee kind of like, you know, it's a slur at this point. Or maybe even derogatory. But the Pharisees, guys, were the good guys. They were the good guys. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones that all the people of Israel looked to for direction. They were the exemplars. And Jesus arrives on the scene and he looks straight through them. Matthew 6, verse 16 to 18 says And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Or in Matthew 23, listen to what he says about the good guys, the good guys in this culture. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones of all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Mark 7, we just read it in CBR recently. Jesus tells us the primary concern is the heart. I love the illustration Pastor Ian used last week of the quarter getting stuck in the vending machine. They knew what was right, but that quarter had not dropped down to the heart and out through the hands. So if that is absolutely not what God is after, what is God after? Our second point, the true fast, the true fast. And this section is broken down into three different if-then statements. If this, then that. If this, then that. If this, then that. We'll, We'll see the flow as we go. It's basically three exhortations to do something followed by the promise of blessing. The first one that we'll look at is to embrace responsibility here in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? The fast God desires isn't what we would imagine. God desires that we would do justice, that we would do justice. And justice is simply this, setting things right, setting things right, which, by the way, apart from God is impossible. Without a basis for what we know to be right, we cannot set things right. It's impossible apart from God. And the purpose of fast days was actually, in the Old Testament, to create a more just society. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. But it goes even further. It says, not only should we relieve the yoke or burden, but we should do those things, right? But then it says, break the yoke if necessary. Break this yoke. Instead of bondage and brokenness, there should be freedom, Not only of loosing the yoke, but also breaking the yoke itself. Whether that's an injustice, an inhumanity, or an inequity. Verse 6 is telling us we should be involved in long-term, outcome-oriented justice. Secondly, in verse 7, it dials in on individual cases of this. Says share your food with the hungry. And this expression, uh, sharing your food, okay, great, I got a little bit of extra. I'll give it away. That's not exactly what it's saying here. It's saying actually to serve or wait on the hungry. To wait on the hungry. In other words, be involved. Not just hand something out, but be involved. Homeless poor can also be translated alien, foreigner, outsider. Bring them inside. Cover the naked. Do not turn yourself or hide from your own flesh. This term, own flesh, is humanity. Do not turn away. Do not turn away from our hurting humanity. The check engine light popping up. I mean, my, my dashboard's lighting up this week. Gosh, where does our mind, where does our heart go when we hear this? If it goes right or left, you're missing it. Primarily, it needs to look up. This is God. This is God. This isn't an earthly political issue. This is God-oriented worship. Or to identify with the poor, with the afflicted, with the oppressed. I don't want you to take my word for it. Matthew 25 says this. I'm going to read a lengthy section, but I think it's worth it. Listen to this. Then the king will say, to those on his right and those in his left, He's separating the wheat and the goats, right? Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king answered them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You did these to these, my brothers, you did it to me. He identifies so closely with those who are down and out. That's impossible to know him without knowing them. Jesus is painting a, a very intense picture here that we need to identify closely with the lowly. So brothers and sisters, here at the King's Church, do we do this? Do we do this? What calls call us just to get busy. There's a thirsty, hurting, broken world out there. We've got some good news to take to them. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. And then out of this flows a blessing. Verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Here I am. Draw near to me by caring for the people no one cares about, and your light will break forth like the dawn. We want our light to break forth. God gives love's hopes. Those who cannot help themselves, and this is you and me, don't forget this. This is you and me. His children who believe in him will do the same. This is what God says to his people in Zechariah. Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none devise evil against one another in your heart. And then in Psalm 82, give justice to the weak, the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then from Proverbs 14, this is gripping, this is gripping. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. We'll keep moving to verse 9. Next we see correcting of wrongs. The second exhortation is about correcting all the wrong we see around us by pouring ourselves out. Verse 9 says, if you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Again, God goes beyond writing a check at a distance, doesn't he? He says, pour yourself out for the hungry. Pour yourself out. This is exactly what Jesus taught. He didn't simply tell us the things we should be doing. He actually came and did them. He poured himself out completely. He satisfied the desire of the afflicted. And he told his disciples to do the same exact thing. The Christian life is this. Take up your cross, follow me. If you lose your life, you will find it. Lay it down, just pour it out for others. And then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called repairer of the breach and restorer of the streets to dwell in. Like we said at the beginning, God is redeeming all things. We get to be a part of this, bringing light into dark places. We get to give ourselves for others. And as we do this, things light up. I'd like to just put before you that maybe happiness can't be found by acquiring more stuff. Maybe true joy is found by giving yourself away. 1 John 3 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how can he say, God's love abides in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. They will know us by our love. There's uh, this idea, like, love is love out there, which means nothing, but no, love has a shape to it. It says, my life for yours. I said, a wedding yesterday, and that is what they're doing. They're saying, my life for yours, I love you, as opposed to the motto of our time, which is your life for mine, your life for mine. We're distinct in the way we love by the way we lay our lives down. What would it look like in our, in our city groups to be a people who laid our lives down for one another? It would have a mighty and powerful evangelistic witness to the outside world who can't find love like that. We lay our lives down, my life for yours. And then the next thing we see, the last if-then involves our worship. We enjoy the Sabbath. Specifically, that our worship would come from a place of delight. This moves us away from hypocritical self-interest to Christ-centered obedience. Verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. See, the Sabbath was not a fast day, but it was a feast day. And I think Isaiah is doing something intentional here. See, at the beginning, we're told this fast was relatively useless. And now he's saying the Sabbath or this feast is where it's at. Why does he tell us this? The Lord is more interested in our enjoyment of his blessings through obedience than self-imposed deprivation. The heartbeat of true worship is joyful conformity to everything God has ordained. That's where the joy's at. That's where the feasting is. And the Sabbath was always created for man to enjoy and glorify God by resting in him. It's a release from our addiction to productivity and efficiency. How many of you have ever not been doing something and felt guilty about not doing something? Maybe it's just me, I feel that way all the time. Or how many of you have had this exact interaction? How you doing? Good, busy, but good. That is like our default mechanism. And the Sabbath was set up to remind us each and every week you're not primarily an employee or a business owner, or a student. All those pursuits are good, but there's something better. Your primary task is to worship God and delight in Him. That's it. But if we're honest, we view the Sabbath as like a holiday that we don't observe, right? We view the Sabbath as something that if people actually hold to it, wow, they're so legalistic. Look at them. Or We look at them and they're like, they're overly overly literal in the scriptures about Sabbath. It's a Ten Commandment. That's all I'm saying. While we are enslaving ourselves to workaholism, this is a huge issue. Obliterating the time of undivided attention with our loved ones and family and our creator himself. If we set aside, if we did this, if we actually did this, we would have seven and a half weeks Of sabbath in our year seven and a half weeks of sabbath just focusing on the lord and enjoying him and the ones we love focusing on who he is and what he's done god has made a weekly appointment with us will we keep that and delight in it? and then the blessing that comes from it verse 14 then you shall take delight in the lord and i will make you ride on the heavens on the heights of the earth, right on the heavens. That would be cool. Right on the heights of the earth, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The more costly the human discipline, the more we hope to get out of it. How many of you have done like some crazy crash diet? The more costly the discipline, the more we hope to get out of it. And here we're told That we can actually come to a place of finding exquisite delight in resting in the Lord. This is costly and it's inconvenient. But delighting in Jesus is the most valuable thing we could ever hope to attain. There's nothing higher. There's nothing greater. It is the pearl of great price. It is the treasure that you would sell everything for and bury. Let's knock something over. In verse 2, they said they delighted in God, but only for what they could get from God. And here at the end, it's saying, delight, find this exquisite delight in God simply because he is, simply because he is. And an exquisite delight, hates sin, loves Christ, treasures his word, gets busy working for the benefit of others, relieves oppression and builds the church. That is what delight does. You orient your life around the things you delight in. We know that's true. Football yesterday, you had 100,000 suckers into a stadium to watch men in tight pants run around chasing a leather ball. We delight in it, so we we put our lives. we, We move everything. We move schedules. We pay for tickets. We go there to worship, to worship. Do we do the same with God? I've got to tell you, by this point, in, in my pre- It was actually Friday leading into Saturday, pretty much all day. I was just guilty, frankly. I was just guilty. I don't do this. I don't do this. So I'll leave you with two quick thoughts. This was convicting because I failed to do justice. I failed to do justice. I am slow to pour myself out for others. And I neglect or completely miss delighting in the Sabbath at all. But I long to live a life free from hypocrisy. And friends, the antidote to hypocrisy, the antidote to mine, the antidote to your hypocrisy, is this. Confess your sin. Confess your sin. Hypocrisy is that mask hiding what's beneath. It's saying you're one thing while being something different. And hypocrisy can only live in an atmosphere without confession confession moves us into the light and says, this is who I am. I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. I'm often wrong. I'm regular. Every day I'm wrong. Every day I sin. It's living in the open. It's living in the light. John 1, 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light where Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship. We have rich fellowship. If we confess our sins, we can put hypocrisy to death. And ironically, that's how you get access into the church. That is, it's, it's the only organization where acknowledging you're a sinner is how you belong. Acknowledging you're a failure is how you gain access. I spent most of the week feeling guilty until, until the past couple of days when I realized that this text is about Jesus. I realized Jesus has done it brothers and sisters, Jesus has completely fulfilled every conditional statement in the Old Testament. Every single one. Every if-then of the law. If you read the Gospels, you will see the Son of God walk in perfect obedience, perfect justice. He feeds thousands, loosing the yoke, lifting the burden, and all the while going hungry himself, bearing the yoke and being lifted up. So he is the just and the justifier. Then we see Jesus completely pour himself out for others. He condescended, pouring himself out. He put on flesh and lived for others. He taught us how we should love. He defined love so clearly. He poured himself out on a cross that we might be filled up. And then Jesus fulfilled the full intention of the Sabbath. So much not just on the surface level, but underneath, so much that all of the Pharisees thought he was breaking it because of his observance of it, which is amazing thought to sit in for a few hours if you have time, which none of us do. So let's make time. Let's make time. That's amazing. And now he invites us to enter into his rest. In fulfilling the entire law, the if statements we just looked at, He bore the curse for breaking them. He bore the curse for breaking them. And now he gives us the blessings that we do not deserve, but he does. Grace upon grace, brothers and sisters. When we're reading this passage, it says, if you do this, then this. Things have changed. Things have twisted. Things have pivoted. Watch this. Jesus stood up and cried in John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about his spirit. From this place of blessing, we now move and do justice. This is amazing. This is amazing. There's no condemnation for us. We will fail at this over and over and over again. But we move from a place of blessing in Christ out to do justice, out to pour ourselves out for the needs of others, into his rest. He sources us, and out of the hearts that He sources flow streams of living water poured out into a thirsty world. So let's get busy. Let's care for each other and our community well because of the grace we've been shown. So that many would wonder, looking into this preview of coming attractions, what is up with this upside-down kingdom and these people who say there's another king? because when Jesus returns, he will set all things finally right. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. Thank you so much for doing what we could never do for a day, for a, for a moment. Father, you have done sending your son jesus what we could never do and now you you beckon us come all who are weary all who are heavy laden and i will give you rest my yoke is easy my burden is light so father in this moment and moments to come we just come to you father for all of the ways that we fall short we thank you for jesus now, out of that place of gratitude, Father, move us as fountains of living water to move out to a people who needs a drink, who needs food, needs a friend. Father, make us into just people. That is the only way we can do justice. Father, Be with us in the moments that follow. Help us be changed. Not just resonate, but obey. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.